This is Join the Dots, the podcast about the impact of everyday choices for our health, wallets and planet. Welcome to our new series, Demystifying Expertise. While making our regular podcast, we are connecting with experts in many fields, some familiar, some less so. In this series, we'll learn about what they do and how they see the world. In this episode, I'm joined by Tanya Rosen, who is currently in the Lesser Caucasus Mountains in Georgia. She is the conservation advisor at the Caucasus Nature Fund. Thank you for speaking to us, Tanya. Thank you. We'll come to your current job shortly, but I'd love to hear first from you a little bit about your career journey that has taken you from uh, studying law in Harvard and then further in Yale and working in New York than various Central Asian countries and back to the mountains in Georgia seems to me almost like a fairy tale from urban centers to horseback in the plains of Central Asia, which excites me particularly because I am from Turkey and my part of my family came from the Caucasus Mountains. So I was fighting with my co-hosts to be the person who interviews you. So I'm super excited to be talking to you. Tell me, how does one go from New York to Central Asia and and where you are now? Well, since I was a very little child, I always had uh, this huge passion for for wildlife and especially for carnivores and especially bears, brown bears. Mm -hmm. Uh, Part of my family is from mountain areas in the former Yugoslavia. And so growing up, I had a chance to spend a lot of time in nature and have a lot of time on my own exploring and occasionally running into wildlife. And that somehow must have influenced my uh, my soul and my uh, and just my interest and attitude to life. And even though later a series of events, including the fact that my, my family was deeply affected by the war in the former Yugoslavia, then caused me to uh, take a more practical attitude to life and then uh, embrace the idea of studying law and becoming an international lawyer with this uh, idea of working for the UN and working as a hostage negotiator and resolving all the wars in the world, Mm -hmm. that love for nature always stayed with me. But then, you know, for years, I did like many other people. I went to law school and then I did internships at the UN and then decided that it was important to study in the US. And so I managed to get a scholarship to study at Harvard. And I had actually already moved to the US to work for a law firm. And uh, and I was projected towards this idea of, uh, you know, working for a big law firm in New York uh, to uh, uh, learn a lot of important skills that then I could eventually use as somebody working for the UN. Mm-hmm. But then in 2001, I had landed a really great job in a New York law firm. One day I was going to work and, uh, and it was September 11, 2001, and there was the terrorist attack. Mm-hmm. And that whole event made me reconsider life and priorities. You know, life sometimes can be very unpredictable and uh, and could end from one moment to the other. Mm-hmm. And also that whole experience had left some significant trauma that time in nature and especially in Yellowstone was actually helping me 
heal, I realized that I could not see myself any longer working as a corporate lawyer and not even working for the UN the way I originally conceived. And so uh, I decided to do like a 360 degree change and uh, decided that I wanted to become a, a wildlife biologist. I had no contacts, no friends, nobody that I could ask and talk to for advice. And so it was all just a series of research and asking people and, uh, and that process of asking and seeking advice to total strangers then led to, um, you know, the opportunity to then work as a volunteer field tech for a grizzly bear project in Yellowstone. Mm. And, uh, and at the same time, uh, it was something that uh, also allowed me to understand where, you know, I could get the uh, education needed to truly become a wildlife biologist. And so uh, kind of a new chapter started for me. And it was also when my daughter was born. So, um, you know, this whole uh, restart and uh, rediscovery was particularly important, but also more challenged by the fact that I was uh, mm-hmm. a mother with a very young child. Mm-hmm. But a few years later, I met up with a colleague working in Pakistan who was telling me about some of the challenges that he was experiencing in uh, dealing with human snow leopard conflicts. And so asked me for some advice and to help him with writing a proposal to um, access some additional funds for his work. And then he told me, well, but if I do get this grant, you have to come and, you know, we'll put some you know, funding for your plane ticket. And I kind of laughed at the comment that he made, that we actually did get the grant. And so at that point, he was like, well, now you have to come to Pakistan. And going there, you know, visiting these incredible communities in, uh, you know, Gilgit Baltistan, which is the northern mountainous part of Pakistan, brought to uh, light the fact that all of my, you know, international background and training had a role to play even in this new uh, phase of my life as a wildlife biologist. Around the same time, I had just gotten a a job with the Wildlife Conservation Society, originally just to work on carnivore human-wildlife conflict issues in the Yellowstone region. But uh, because everybody knew of my uh, side project uh, in Pakistan, uh, I got quickly involved into this um, idea of creating, a, uh, developing a, a framework for transboundary conservation between Afghanistan, Pakistan, Tajikistan, and China. Mm. And that quickly evolved into uh, the proposal to, uh, to go to Tajikistan to help uh, organize a workshop and then set the basis for setting up of, uh, of actually a conservation program in Tajikistan. And so I did go to Tajikistan thinking it would be just a uh, you know, three-week-long trip. That was in 2011, and I ended up staying there. You know, Being there didn't feel more strange or remote than working in Montana because I was working on some of the species that I was really passionate about and uh, working with uh, incredible people in the country and local young biologists and uh, in communities that had these incredible stories to share and to tell, and I felt at home. Mm. And so uh, I I stayed there. Mm. And um, originally, uh, my work was focused solely on Tajikistan, but then uh, we expanded the reach of our work into Kyrgyzstan, working on the same issues. And uh, 
very much working on uh, helping uh, local communities uh, manage their own natural resources and their own wildlife is a way of creating incentives for this wildlife to be protected by them and not to be exploited unsustainably or being poached. And uh, so I did that for many years. Originally it was with the Wildlife Conservation Society and then later on was uh, with another US-based organization called Panthera, where I worked until 2018. And then slowly the reach of my uh, interests and work expanded I realized that some of the work that we were doing in those two countries had also applications in neighboring countries, you know, working on snow leopards or working on Persian leopards, the challenges are very similar. So this is how at some point I started also making connections with colleagues in uh, different countries across Central Asia, in Kazakhstan, in Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and then in Iran and the Caucasus, where there is a number of leopards that have come from Iran that are struggling to establish themselves in the Caucasus with the, the situation being obviously complicated by uh, the usual problems of uh, poaching, but compounded by the fact that there is conflict in the region that makes uh, the movement of these leopards more complicated and the collaboration and conservation efforts more complicated. Gosh, I feel very humbled actually by all that story because there is a lot of strife and difficulty with war and life-changing terrorism impact that you were in the middle of. But you're talking about them in a very positive light. I felt felt kind of embarrassed halfway through of your story that I thought I shouldn't have maybe used the word fairy tale. But I'm really encouraged to see how you can turn it into positive work and make positive choices about your life. The interesting thing is that when I kind of went down this road was to also in part to sort of cope with uh, the trauma from uh, what I had experienced in uh, in 2001. And I had this actually fairy tale idea that working with wildlife was this amazing, happy, happy life. Mm. And while I have to say that there is many, many fairy tale moments still which happen thanks to the animals themselves mm. when we see them or when we manage to achieve something that contributes to their conservation and uh, and it also happens when you know meeting and working with like-minded people uh sometimes I, I realize that it's a way more complicated and difficult life than i ever expected at so many levels mm. first of all because uh, i i was under this sort of false expectation that everybody in this field is really driven by a desire to protect species there's also lots of people in this field that Maybe they had the drive and the passion, but somehow they lost it on the way. Mm. And they're very cynical and they can be very uh, brutal and territorial and very difficult to deal with. Then, you know, I, I kind of thought of us as conservationists as kind of like the Red Cross, you know, even though we, we might be working in uh, complicated countries or conflict areas that somehow because we are conservationists, everybody's going to see us as neutral. And that's absolutely not the case. We get caught mm. into this horrible politics. And it happened to me in Tajikistan when you know I was accused of being a spy and detained and harassed and, and um, 
in Kyrgyzstan, we also had uh, not at that level, but uh, now and then we had to deal with some questioning mm. and so forth. Mm. And then, you know, the biggest uh, case was in Iran, which didn't happen to me personally, but it happened to my colleagues there who were, because of the complex relationships between uh, Iran uh, or the non-relationships between Iran and the United States and uh, and the fact that I was at that time working for an organization that was uh, that had been established by a person who was politically very active in trying to promote regime change in Iran, our colleagues in Iran got caught into all of this crazy politics and were arrested and jailed. And uh, one of them died in prison and uh, the rest of the group to this date is still in jail. And uh, and these are people who are conservationists who have never had any history of you know political activism, and the whole chapter, which is obviously still ongoing, has been a terrible um, surprise because mm. I I never thought that this could ever happen to biologists who are just caring about getting data and uh, yeah. and promoting policies for the conservation of wildlife. Yeah, I, I'd read about this, actually, but I was very surprised because when we, as sort of ordinary folk, hear about stories of conservation of carnivores and big cats and bears, we're just looking at through the camera's lens to the animals in the wild. We very rarely see any kind of political, economic, social conflicts that are going around in the area. But also I would have thought for someone like you working in the field, the biggest risk would be to be kind of maybe attacked by by the animals themselves or something. You know, I never had thought about the political ramifications of what you're doing or misunderstandings or conditions you find yourself in without your control. I heard you speak at a National Geographic event and I must say you're also a National Geographic explorer. I have to ask you afterwards, how are you come to be called that. In that one, you do also mention that you want to work with the local people, not just for the sort of economic benefits of protecting these species, but also just to experience observing the species as a therapy almost, as a way to forget your fears and trauma and experience. I thought that was very touching. Does that work? Does it convince them to help you implement your project? It's a, it's a good question. Of course, you know, when people are struggling to put food on the table for their children, uh, they may not have the luxury of thinking uh, of conserving the very wildlife that it's actually compromising their ability to put the food on the table. At the same time, having worked long enough and developed really close relationships with many people in uh, different local communities across Central Asia, I see that, especially, you know, this past year has been very hard for a lot of the local communities because of many of the sources of income being lost. And even in the cases where, for example, trophy hunting is an option for, you know, bringing income to communities that hardly happened. And regardless, all of these people that I know have continued to protect the animals and find find solace in you know in their presence and so that to me mm-hmm. is uplifting and and also confirmation that there is still no matter what you know nature and the wildlife and and protecting them 
are important to the well-being of a human, no matter Mm -hmm. their background and their particular circumstances. So can you tell us a little bit about why these species and also actually the people who live, share the nature with with them in, in these mountainous areas, what kind of pressures are they under? Why are these species declining? And what kind of measures do you take to reverse that? Yeah, so uh, there is various threats affecting them. You know, the the biggest one, you know, is related to, uh, you know, loss of uh, prey. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's not just the animals that are, I mean, you know, for example, the snow leopards or Persian leopards that are necessarily killed. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, the fact that the prey is being decimated, that leaves uh, the leopards without a normal food base. Mm-hmm. And then adding to that is habitat loss mm-hmm. and encroachment due to the fact that uh, obviously a lot of people for their needs and for general economic reasons are relying and depending upon livestock. And as this numbers of livestock increase, that uh, creates greater conflict. And then, then you have because of the close contact between uh, the livestock and the leopards, that's when you have mm. the direct conflict and the depredations, which then uh, local people, you know, some of them uh, obviously try to uh, address by trapping the leopards and uh, or killing them directly. So what would be the natural food source for leopards? It depends on the country, but generally is the ibex, mm. which is this wild goat. Mm-hmm. And then there is the um, Argali sheep, which is uh, a wild sheep. And then for the Persian leopard, you have uh, the Bezoar goat. And then you have uh, the Uriel sheep, which is it's kind of a different subspecies mm. of the ones that are found in parts of Tajikistan and Turkestan. Are they sort of targeted by people? Or they just don't have enough habitat? They lose the habitat because of livestock mm-hmm. and that impacts the reproduction. And, and then they're, po- they're you know, killed by local people mm-hmm. because uh, their meat is very tasty. And uh, yeah, there is no arguing about that. But uh, when they are you know, killed uh, indiscriminately and uh, without at least having a quota mm-hmm. at the very least, then uh, the consequences for the for the population can be very detrimental. Yeah, so the leopards that don't have enough natural prey then could attack livestock and that triggers the yeah. humans in the area to see yeah. the leopard as the enemy. And then, you know, these are the most typical threats. And then compounding those threats, mm-hmm. especially, you know, in the case of Persian leopards, mm-hmm. is the fact that then you have border fences. Mm-hmm. And uh, in some of the border fences that have been uh, built around Turkmenistan and uh, mm-hmm. or in the Caucasus that, you know, separate Armenia and Azerbaijan from Iran are fences that are quite, uh, you know, dense and, and hard for for even for a leopard to cross mm. and not to mention for the prey. Mm. And so that limits the movement of the prey and of the leopard and limits their ability to expand. Mm. So, yeah, we kind of theoretically speak about environment knows no borders, nature knows no borders, so we should collaborate across nations. But actually here you have physical border problem where animals can't cross. Yeah. And it changes the way that they live and then therefore what they do to survive. In the Caucasus, then the additional problem is, you know, because of the conflict, Mm. some of the borders are mined. 
So there's landmines, mm. essentially aim to uh, not kill people, but maim people. And so the result is that they not kill the wildlife, but they might maim the wildlife. Mm. And so there have mm. been uh, uh, some leopards that uh, looks like they might have stepped on landmines and, and still managed to survive. But obviously, uh, we don't know for sure whether all of them survived and uh, mm. whether there's other leopards that maybe succumbed to injuries and didn't make it. And so that's an additional stressor. And so what kind of projects do you work on? What kind of measures you use to address these problems? So currently in my role as conservation advisor for the Caucasus Nature Fund, uh, my sort of mandate is to uh, support the organization in their support of protected areas in Georgia and Armenia, Mm -hmm. and hopefully soon also in Azerbaijan. And, uh, and so at the level of really equipping uh, the protected areas with the resources to protect the areas well from uh, poaching and from other disturbances. And, uh, and, it's, and it's a huge task because there's a great many challenges. And the first one being that uh, typically rangers in general in Central Asia and in the Caucasus are not well paid. And Mm. the Caucasus Nature Fund uh, supplements the salaries of rangers in Armenia and Azerbaijan in selected protected areas, which has already made a difference in terms of motivating um, the rangers to work well. But there's still a long way to go because there's still a lot of the rangers that don't have uh, all the training that they need to do their job well. So, uh, and adding to that is really also equipping the protected areas with the skills to monitor the wildlife, because otherwise we may not know what is the impact of the investments made in these protected areas Mm. if we don't see how that changes the, the status of uh, some of the uh, mm. the most iconic and most representative wildlife found in these areas. So that's my main job. But on the side, I'm I'm still involved with some of the work in uh, in Central Asia and uh, primarily in uh, in Turkmenistan, uh, supporting um, a team there to uh, through camera trapping. Uh, increase our knowledge of presence, absence, and density of leopards. Mm. And so this is sort of an ongoing effort. And then also addressing uh, the uh, conflict hotspots so that we can... Conflict between the the animals and the people. People, yeah. So that that we can uh, work with the communities and introduce some measures to reduce central conflict. And uh, there is also this one incredible area that through, you know, camera trapping, we realize it's a very important leopard area that currently is not protected at all. Mm. The idea is to uh, then prepare the uh, justification for setting that area Mm. aside as a protected area. So that's one other piece of the work. And that also includes this issue of the border fences, because we've already seen that they have a huge impact on the movement of wildlife. And hopefully there, there will be means through working, first of all, working with the Convention on Migratory Species and, uh, and then also working with neighboring countries to hopefully come to some understanding and agreement as to how to, uh, while obviously prioritizing national security, also to uh, allow for the wildlife to use some gaps in the fence to move freely. Oh, that that's a really big portfolio, Tanya. 
I'm amazed you found some time to speak to me amongst all, all that job. Thank you so much again. But do you also work with parties like of governments or international organizations at the very high level policy stuff as well? Because behind these individual conflict areas and behind the low wages of rangers, you have massive large scale economic pressures, right? So do you provide information, inspiration for that higher level policymakers as well so they work with you? Or do they just see conservation as like, oh, we'll just designate a few areas and then we can forget about that problem? Yes. So we also work very closely with a number of uh, international partners. And uh, in terms of like conventions, obviously the Convention on Migratory Species of Wild Animals, CMS, Mm -hmm. plays a huge role. And it's a very easy convention to work with because they have a very deep understanding of sort of the work that we do on the ground. Mm -hmm. And so they take a lot of our input in their international policy making and for example, one being uh, the very creation of it's called the Central Asia Mammals Initiative, which provides like the platform for the discussion of all threats facing uh, a list of uh, iconic uh, species found in Central Asia, which obviously includes the snow leopard and the Persian leopard and uh, and some of the key prey like the Uriel and the uh, Argali sheep, the Goitari gazelle. Mm-hmm. And so the specific issue of the fences is something that they are very, very keen on addressing. Mm -hmm. And uh, because they have this uh, power to obviously interact and influence, you know, national policies, their role in actually finding some solutions will be crucial. And then I also have relations and contacts with people working in in the ministries in several national governments were all very dedicated to uh, resolving these pressing conservation issues. And of course, then there's also the donor community that uh, plays also an important role because resolving some of these issues requires financial resources that foundations and governments through their development programs can help address. You mentioned in passing about hunting trophies and ecotourism as well. And I wanted to ask you about them because some funding is great, but they tend to be time limited, right? You want to give a a longer term sustainable source of income to the local people. And I know you work on that. Can you tell us a little bit about that income generating aspect? First of all, I'm not a hunter. I don't like most of the trophy hunters. As people, I find them really, really strange. Sometimes you just have to leave your emotions aside and just think of what is good for the communities mm. and and also think that you know your values and the way you see wildlife may not be how the local people see the wildlife and it may not be the motivation for them to protect the wildlife and in some cases really there has to be a strong economic argument for them to protect the wildlife mm. and so that's where hunting comes into play you know it's not the only tool but it becomes one of the mm. several income generating possibilities and it has plus and minuses and um, I would say the big minus is that because there is so much money involved, mm. it attracts a lot of backlash within the country. And so um, it may attract other interests and in people who then want to uh, sort of seize the business mm. and then want to destroy that community-based effort. 
And that is sometimes not so much the case with tourism mm -hmm. because tourism is it just has a different economic value. It's obviously there's not as much money coming in, but it's sort of a steady mm -hmm. income that is enough mm -hmm. for creating an argument for, for conservation. Enough for the community and not too much to attract people from outside. Yeah. And I've had even like people from some community-based conservancies tell me that they were so stressed by the whole trophy hunting that they were just happy to just deal with mm -hmm. just focusing on on tourism as a source of income rather than dealing with the backlash, mm -hmm. the political problems, you know, with the hunting. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, I think hunting has a role, but it has huge problems that tourism doesn't have. However, one of the advantages of trophy hunting is that Trophy hunters do not require much. They just want to shoot an animal mm. or pretend they have shot an animal. Mm. They'll spend a lot of money and don't care about staying in a nice place. They just come and it could be very rich people. You put them in a in a shelter with sleeping somewhere with bed bugs and they'll be fine, mm. which is kind of odd, but that's how they are. But with tourism, it's a different story because if you want to attract some tourism that is going to actually bring some, you know, some reasonable income, you need to create some infrastructure. Mm. And so, and that, you know, generates its own issues and concerns because you don't want to create infrastructure that then has a negative footprint on, on the environment. And that has still not been the case in Tajikistan and Turkistan mm. because the level of tourism there is still somewhat limited. But I've seen it like in the Caucasus in Georgia, mm. with Georgia being extremely popular is a tourism destination mm. and seeing, you know, beautiful places trashed. And it's, it really hurts to see, yeah. you know, trash everywhere mm. or see suddenly all these incentives for, you know, building uh, horrible hotels and facilities just to get people. Mm. And so I really wish that, in, you know, in the future, there is a way, especially now after, well, while we're still in the pandemic and the fact that obviously people go on vacation, they will prefer to go in places where there's not that many people. Mm. I hope that that at least provides an incentive for like changing how uh, people experience places and then hopefully that might lead to uh, promoting you know some uh, form of different options of like more responsible and truly like ecotourism. I have a friend in the UK who is a journalist and also she organizes trips in Central Asia and the Caucasus mm. and she was talking about how she's getting feedback from people saying that they want to experience places in a more sort of authentic way, mm. which would be good for the nature and the wildlife. Yes, I hope we're learning something from this pandemic. But I want to ask a more positive question to you. What keeps you going? It's the animals and uh, mm. the wildcats and the leopards. I almost have a kind of a religious attachment to this animal. I cannot quite explain in a logical way. You know, people make fun of me a great deal. But, uh, you know, at, at times when I ask myself, why am I doing this? Why am I subjecting myself to this, this and that when I could be just, mm. you know, doing something else and, you know, being uh, at home with, you know, my animals and, and then just living a, a happy, uh, more stress-free life. Mm. Always one of my animals that I study that sort of shows up and just tells me, no, no, you are, you're supposed to stay here and help us. It's amazing. It happens every single time. I mean, not that often, but 
happens often enough that, you know, I feel like I have to do the best I can until I don't, I mean, maybe for the rest of my life, but for sure, at least until the moment where I feel like other people can do that. And, uh, which is actually the case in uh, in some of the countries where I work less because I have amazing colleagues who have basically taken up upon themselves to do mm. the same work. But yeah, these animals bring so much life and, and joy and meaning to my life that that's enough for me to just endure the sort of the, the negative sides of this work. I'm a little lost to a word, Tanya, the way you're explaining this kind of spiritual element to your work. It's really moving me. Thank you so much for sharing that. Are there things that you learned in, in your work? And I think maybe this spiritual connection is one. Is there anything that you learned in, in your work that you think would be helpful for others working in any aspect of environment? I would like to say that, you know, thanks to these animals, I've learned so much about peoples and countries that have uh, often a very negative reputation Mm. or that are viewed in a certain like superficial way. Mm. And so I'm grateful to that incredibly. And I use every opportunity that I have to sort of bring out this other stories of these countries and these people. But I also wanted to say that I wish that sort of the world of politicians, US or Europe, would really uh, also sort of do the same because I feel like that if they had this uh, deeper knowledge of the lives and the struggles of people in these countries, it would positively affect their international negotiations and policymaking bit more respect and understanding I think you're calling for isn't it before we make judgments about who the other people are yeah maybe stop and learn and put ourselves in their shoes as much as possible although that's quite a difficult thing to do is there anything that you'd like to say to sort of end and and leave our listeners with well to uh, be be curious about leopards (laughs) In the countries they live in, because of the countries that these leopards live in are are spectacular and complex, and and uh, and I hope you know more people can take time and interest in discovering them. I will ask you for some links yeah. to these countries and the project and the things that you'd like us to learn. We'll put them on on our website and spread the word as much as we can. Thank you so much for making time for us um, and joining us in Join the Dos. You're more than welcome. Do you have this effect on everybody or is this a very emotional day for me? I don't know. Well, I do get emotional when I talk about leopards. Um, Say hi to all your lovely animals from me. I will. Thank you. It was really wonderful to talk to you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the rest of the team, Tara Uygur on podcast production and Neil McEwen on sound and music. If you enjoyed this, look out for our upcoming episodes and all other info on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com.